Following Jesus means that we accept his plans for self-denial and not being ashamed of him wherever we go and whatever we do. Jesus' lifestyle and mission was contrary to the world's mode of thinking. And some are like Simon Peter. They know enough about him to, to discuss with him something of who he is. But as far as really following him, they don't get it. There are people in this world that, that want to be a part of the kingdom of God. They want all the benefits and the accoutrements of being a follower of Christ. They want the security that the believer has in knowing they have a home in heaven. But as far as really knowing about Christ and letting him penetrate their life and change them, they're, they're not going to let it happen. They're going to stay the way they are, blinded. Heard a story about a guy years ago that was on a business trip and he was going home and he wanted to bring his new wife something special and he knew that she had this affinity for, for perfume. So he stops by a counter uh, in a store to pick up just the right perfume for her. Well, the, uh, the lady that it was a, uh, an expert at picking out perfumes begins to show him some and he looks at them and, of course, rather than looking at the name, he looks at the bottom of the box and he said, ooh, $215? No, that's too much. And so she selects another and brings it to him, and it's $95. And he's struggling with that, and he said, you know, he said, that's, that's nice, but that's just too much. I, I need something smaller. She brings out a $78 box, and he said, that's just, whew, that's just too much. He said, can you show me something really cheap? The very sage sales lady held up a mirror and handed it to him. <laughs> he didn't know it until that time. The reality is this. We're like that man. We're, we're blind sometimes to the reality. The problem is not out there. It's in here. We're the one that's blind. We're the one that, that needs to see. Many people are approaching their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and they don't understand that he comes into our life to change us. Nothing new about that. People have been struggling with that for years. 500 years ago, Martin Luther wrote, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. And that is so true today. Seventy years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians of all time, wrote in The Cost of Discipleship these words. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ and his living that is incarnate. So many people want the benefits of salvation, but they don't want to pay the cost that's required of them. There's a risk involved in this subject today. The risk is something you might not imagine. Salvation is a free gift, but it requires total commitment on our part. It's not something that you pick up from the sales lady handing out samples at the door of a business. No, not at all. It requires a relationship that is so personal that the deepest motives and desires of your heart will be altered when you submit yourself to the will and the direction of Christ Jesus. The risk is that someone might get the idea that life in Jesus 
is something we're earning. No, we're not. It's free. But the love that draws us to Him compels us to be closer than ever. That we would change, not just to gain a home in heaven, but in becoming something that we could never be on our own. Some people think that by being good enough or doing enough of the right things, they're okay. That, that simply is not true. Scripture's clear to this point. You have to yield to what only He can give to you. You don't earn it. There's never a day that you get a star on the top of your paper for that day as if somehow you've done far and beyond better than anyone else. We are all sinners saved by grace. We're all suffering. We're all broken. And in the midst of that brokenness, God expects us to love Him and yield to Him. And at the same time, there's a risk that somehow we would downplay what Jesus said and, and, and manage to ignore it completely. And people do that. I'm amazing that, amazed with people that take Christianity and move it into something about self-help. And somehow you're improving your life a little bit. No, not at all. You're ending your life and beginning the life of Christ when you yield to Him. So this morning, I want to think a little bit about the price we pay. Salvation's a free gift, but a relationship with Jesus requires that we change. The question was often asked in the New Testament, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered them by saying basically nothing. You don't have to do anything for eternal life, but you must throw your life away totally and absolutely, and you need to change. While being saved is a matter of God's gift, walking with Him is a sacrifice that we must all make. What's the cost we pay today? I want to think about that for a few minutes. The first cost is that we must know who Jesus is. This is not a casual relationship. It's not one where you can believe what your teacher or your neighbor or your deacon or your pastor says, and you'll say, I'm good with that. No. It's about your, you interacting with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Listening to what He says to you. Understanding that it's not just a matter of assent or agreement. It's a matter of changing your very daily lives. There's a good confession that Peter makes there. He, he looked and he said, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Boy, that was a good answer. We all remember the Simon Peters in our life that were in school, that were always, when the teacher had a question, they were the ones, oh, 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 I know the answer, I know the answer. And somehow that feeling of the teacher looking at them and smiling was reward enough. But it goes beyond that. Far beyond that. One of the things that amazed me in college was a very wise Christian professor that I had, Dr. Jean Hendricks, told us one day. She said, college is not about learning the correct answers. Not at all. She said, it is not our job to teach you what to think. We could do that. We could give you the answer page and you could memorize it and you could regurgitate it when we ask for it. She said, that's not at all what college is about. She said, college is about teaching you how to think. How to function in life and make choices that are good. How to weigh things out and come to a balance that's real. Now, I've got to remind you, I went to college a long time ago. It's changed since then. 
Most college students now, basically, they study and believe whatever they hear, and then they turn around and they begin to live that. And that's a blind faith in a God that will kill you every time. That's why I believe that when our young people leave this church, and when we have our, our, our Sunday for graduation for them, and we celebrate all that they've done, it's also a solemn time. It's a testing time. It's when we find out, did the, did the Christ that we presented to them really anchor them where they are? Or are they going to walk blindly into college and allow a person in front of them before a lectern and a group of students tear away systematically their faith? That's why it's so important that when we teach children here, it's not supposed to be just facts and details and, 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 and the stories and who surrounded Jesus and what he did. No, it's much more than that. It's far beyond that. We do that with the children. They're up in children's church right now. In the nursery beside them, there are kids there who are learning about Jesus. But when they get to the time when they're with Paul Thomas and when they're working with the youth on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and Sunday school. That's when salvation becomes personal. That's when they understand that your reputation is what people say you are. Character is what you are when nobody is looking but God. That's when you develop the sense that, that not going with the crowd does not make you a bad person. It makes you a wise person. The choices you make are so significant. So the first question we ask is, what must we know about Jesus to make this determination? Simon Peter made the confession, and that was good, but he turned right around and began to rebuke Jesus for what he said. He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, but somehow he felt he was a consultant to Christ, the living God, and could give him advice. Oh, Lord, don't, don't say those things. Don't talk about dying. You see, they had their preconceived notion of how Jesus was supposed to win them over and take over the world. They already saw him as a superman coming in and taking over the Roman Empire, dominating everything there and making their world better. And you know, he could have done that. And he would have solved the problems for the Christians that lived under Roman rule. But the very moment that that empire collapsed and a new one showed up on the scene, he would be hopeless and helpless to change them. You see, Jesus didn't come to change the situation of the people that lived in that day. He came to be a Messiah for everyone who would ever live. That we could call upon His name and be saved. And that His indwelling Holy Spirit would go with us and change us and make us into what we should be. Somehow Simon Peter didn't see that. You know, you were free to come to church today. Nobody coerced you to do anything else. No one threatened you or told you that you would be in trouble if you came downtown to the church today. You didn't have to go through uh, a barrage of military people and show them your papers to get here. We're still free in America. 
But the reality is, many people don't understand the price that was paid for us to be here. The blood that was spilt by good people who fought for that freedom. And there are people who say, you know, it's cold outside. I just think I'll stay home today. Forgetting that our Lord told us, forsake not the assembling together of yourselves. When he stood before the table with the disciples, he demonstrated something that all Christians should follow. And today at the conclusion of the sermon, we will follow as a part of worship the receiving of the Lord's Supper. Our Lord said, do this often in remembrance of me. For his body was broken and his blood was spilt for us. We must know Jesus personally, daily, and we need to understand what he's given to us. Did you ever wonder where all those ideas about Jesus' identity have come from? One very popular TV preacher loves to get up there and talk about living the better life. Many like to get up there and talk about how you can have financial freedom and Jesus wants you to be rich. We'll be rich one day in heaven. But in life, does it really matter? No, it doesn't. If what you're going after is is money and possessions and power and influence and prestige, God bless you. Because it comes and it goes. Most folks have their 15 minutes of fame in their circle. And it's worth nothing. And heroes come and go. All of us who played sports at some point became the hero of the play. Or maybe of the game. Or maybe of the season. But all that's forgotten. Do you know one of the most expensive things to buy in life and one of the least savored things later in life are trophies that we receive? Remember all those trophies you had? I want to start a business, Tim, where we recycle trophies, don't you? Because I know there are billions of them all around us, and they mean something at one time, but you know what? Every week, every month, every year, a new hero, a new record uh, is there, and somebody breaks it, and a new hero comes along, and that's the way it is. That's life. But what we do for Christ lasts forever. Forever. And somehow we forget that in the midst of our living and and what we do. Satan has a way of deceiving us, making us think that that we're the best. And and if we'll just continue to to do what we're doing, we'll be okay. And we don't have to worry about all that, that strenuous thing about confessing sins and changing and becoming a better person. I've learned this about life. There there are two things about change that are irrevocable as you grow older. Number one, you're going to change, whether you like it or not. And you can do do all the the kicking and screaming and fighting and and, and going and having everything done to become a better person, but guess what? We're all getting older. But in another reflection, some of us are not changing. We're not changing our bad habits. We're not changing... Uh, our way of confessing and forsaking sins. We're not changing and growing closer to Christ. We're staying right where we've always been. And the reality is, as you shift through life, as you get older and as you change, and as your body and your faculties are not what they used to be, you're also propelling in the right direction to be closer to Christ. You're becoming more like Him. 
Your smile should be bigger and your vision should be farther than ever before as you focus on Him. You should not be fearful of the future. You should shudder as you look at the past. And you should know that He's there waiting on you. The second thing I want you to realize is, the second cost is that we must accept who and what He is above all things. Jesus never fit into anybody's mold. You realize that? He, in fact, let's go ahead and say it. He was a rebel. So many people had their ideas of what a Messiah should be, and they'd already dreamed that up. They'd cast their vision, and they had decided this is what he's to be. Simon Peter was there with him, day in and day out, and yet he looked at him and said, Lord, you're wrong. And here's what's so unusual. When he spoke those words, many of us would say, if we had said the same thing to him, we'd say, oh Lord, forgive me, I was just thinking of your best. I was trying to do what, what was best for you. That's not at all what was going on. Jesus said, you are speaking for Satan and nobody else. You don't understand what you're saying. The devil is speaking through you. That should have made him tremble. Like Satan in his pride, Peter wanted to pursue more power, more glory for himself. And he didn't like the idea of a Savior being debased and ridiculed and dying. How could that ever be what, what a Savior would do? Back in the 1950s, Parker Brothers came out with this game. Some of you may remember it's called Going to Jerusalem. And it was made primarily for Christian families, and it was a game they could play on a Friday night or Saturday night or Sunday night, and it, and it was all based, based on, on a Christian theme. It was a board game, and, and, and unlike Monopoly, it didn't, it didn't have the, the characters on there that were different people. Each character was a disciple. I don't remember whether or not Judas was on there or not. I don't think he was, but the disciples were on there, and then they would go to different places and they would start out in Bethlehem and work their way to Jerusalem. And one, one moment you may jump and be in Bethany, and, and the next moment you may jump and you'd be on the Sea of Galilee there with the storms going on and everything, and, and then you would move to Bethsaida, and it was all the different cities in the New Testament. And you were working toward the idea of being in Jerusalem. And that was... Winning the game. You know what the game did not have on there? It didn't have a cross. It didn't have a tomb. Golgotha was never mentioned. It never showed the Roman soldiers scourging his body. It never showed any blood on there. No, it just showed Bethsaida, Capernaum, Nazareth, Bethany, all these wonderful places. But Golgotha is never mentioned, the place of the skull. Players only made their way through the nice stories. It was the kind of game they said that a family could partake in and feel good about at the end of the day. Here's the problem. At the end of the day, if we are truly in touch with our Savior through His Holy Spirit, there may be days that we need to contemplate what we did wrong. Even though we may have a good feeling and everything seems to go our way, what did we do that we shouldn't have done in that day? And what have we neglected that he called us to do? 
Have you ever stopped and said, let me see, how many times have I shared with someone that I knew did not know Jesus as Savior, did I share with them what it meant to be a Christian? Make a list. How many times have you looked and said, what kind of example am I to other Christians, especially younger Christians, weaker Christians? Is there something in my life that I'm neglecting or overlooking? These are the hard questions that would have never been on that board game. But lastly, I want you to think about this. The third cost is that we must identify with who He is. It's not just enough to call Him Lord. It means that we let Him become Lord of our lives. This is Jesus spelling out what it means to be His disciple in a realistic way in your life. It's not enough to merely agree that Jesus is who He is. It's to say, I'm not who I need to be, and I need to be more like Him. The cost of living also involves identifying with Him in an intimate way, in a realistic way. One of the great men in history that we study is a man by the name of Charlemagne. He was the emperor uh, of the Roman Empire. In fact, he's the one that moved the capital to Constantinople. He's the one that had a mother who was a woman of faith who had a vision. And that vision directed him to make the Roman Empire a Christian empire. He did many things that are applaudable. In fact, he's considered the father of modern Europe as we know it now because he allowed the freedoms to build that, uh, that uh, area into these individualized countries. But Charlemagne had a dark side. He had a weakness. He had many illegitimate children. He had many wives and concubines. He struggled with his personal faith because many of the priests wouldn't come near him and, and, and tell him anything of that because he could literally take their life. They were terrified of him. In 1000 AD, 186 years after Charlemagne had died as emperor, the emperor at that time, Otto, had his tomb opened, and they were to clean it, for it was a holy sepulcher to them. Before them, as they opened it, was an extraordinary sight. In the midst of all the finery buried with him, the gold and the jewels and the regalia of a great and mighty emperor, there was his throne, and his skeletal remains were seated on the throne with a crown on his skull. In his lap, strangely enough, he had had a Bible. And no one recalled this, but the Bible was open. And the bones of his index finger of his right hand were laid upon that. And strangely enough, the finger was pointing to Mark 8.36, which was underlined in gold. And it says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? I wonder what Charlemagne gave and what he took when he went to heaven. What is your answer today? And what is your relationship with Him? Let us pray. Father, I thank You that You love us with such a powerful love. And through that love, we are changed forevermore and always.
But Father, we ask in, in our heart of hearts today, are we prepared to come to this table? For at this table, we're to be a person who's confessional, that we confess and forsake our sins, that we prepare ourselves. Are we prepared to take this bread and this wine in remembrance of your body and your blood? Truly, what we're saying is, we leave this place representing you, our Savior, not ourselves. And I pray that this would be a moment of confession, private confession, that we would prepare our hearts to be what we need to be. Lord, speak to someone today who seeks your will and your way, and they're ready to lay down their life for you. And may they hear an answer from your Holy Spirit even now. We pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.